Today we have something a bit unusual. I have my friend Bruce Fine, lawyer in Washington, D.C. If you want to know about him, and there's a lot to know, go to his website, www.lawofficesofbrucefine.com. Bruce, how do you spell fine? F-E-I-N. Law Offices of Bruce Fine, that's F-E-I-N.com, and you'll see what an honor it is to have Mr. Fine on our show for this episode. Bruce would like to speak about the Ten Commandments, which we know, according to certain law professors and historians, is part of the basis for American law, especially in regard to the founding fathers of the United States of America. I know there's some controversy around that and some differences of opinion. Perhaps you can explain it to us a bit better. But we're coming from two completely different angles here. Bruce Fine is a high-powered lawyer, and I'm a rabbi. And we probably look at the Ten Commandments a lot differently. In fact, I would venture to say when I say Ten Commandments and Bruce does, it's probably close to a homonym more than anything else. (laughs) In any case, let's get straight to it. Bruce, explain what you would like to discuss about the Ten Commandments, what you think the Ten Commandments are about, what you feel about them, what you want to discuss, and let's take it from there. Sure. Now, you're certainly correct, Rabbi, that uh, Ten Commandments certainly is an important pillar of United States law in reference to Moses and Ten Commandments is inscribed in U.S. Supreme Court building up on First Street, which I cross every day walking to and from work, so I'm well familiar with that. And I certainly understand the Ten Commandments as theology. It's not intended to be law, although it can have some overlap. Uh, and I don't have no dispute. People can believe the Ten Commandments or not. I My evaluation of the Ten Commandments is not based upon an evaluation of their theological truth. But are there other injunctions, normative behaviors that I think are more uplifting of the species than the Ten Commandments, which, as you know, are more negative than positive. Um, Take, for example, I've created my own Ten Commandments, not because I think I'm greater than Moses or G-O-D or anyone else, just because I believe as a human being, I'm obligated to craft my own standards by which I should be applying my behavior in order to be a better person. One example being in my commandments, never bypass an opportunity to display kindness, to say thank you to somebody, say how are you today, uh, show you that you view them as a, an equal human being, no matter how much money or how much power you have. Just one example of an affirmative uh, norm, if you will, of behavior. Another is you know, always seek justice. Now, what is justice? It can have ambiguity to it. I understand the concept of justice It's not like Euclidean geometry, you put your sums together, you get a specific answer, but there are ranges of behavior that we understand are just. I think everybody would recognize it's not just to convict somebody of a crime without a trial, without due process. They have a chance to respond, right? That's not fair. And that we have to develop, I think, this concept of justice and fight it when you see something's wrong. Speak up. No, that you can't do that. It gives this person an opportunity to respond. And in, a, in, in one respect, I call it the substantive justice, is we understand that everybody's born into different circumstances, some more favorable than others. 
I used to tell my children, listen, we all want a lottery ticket because we weren't born in the Sahel to a, a mother who had no milk, right? So we try to work to make every person's station in life correspond to only their accomplishments and their character. The other stuff goes out the window. Money, your gender, your race, your religion, or anything else. Now, even though I agree that that standard isn't as clear-cut as, say, mathematics, it's got enough of a substance to it that knows when we're pursuing justice as opposed when we're not. We don't steal from the poor and give to the rich. We know that's not just. So these are examples, I believe, of, of, of normative conduct that, in my judgment, build on the Ten Commandments and go beyond them because they're saying, what can you do to, say, repair the, the world? Or you say, Tikkun Olam, um, make the world a little bit better place, but focusing on your behavior affirmatively to do things that diminish the natural injustices that occur simply because accident of birth, we're never going to get rid of that, right? We, we can't ever choose our parents and where we're born. So that's the general idea I have is that we should be thinking not, it's not to have my commandments replace the Ten Commandments, which has a proper place in theology. I'm talking about, if you want, ethics, personal standards by which we hope to make the world better and to make yourself a better human being, which in my view has affirmative obligations, not just desisting from doing evil. Oh, thank you. I happen to agree with just about everything you said. I want to give a little introduction as to what the Ten Commandments are, at least in Judaism. First, the concept of positive versus negative. The Ten Commandments are divided up five and five. Five on the left side, one tablet, and five on the other. The ones on the first tablet, the first five, are all positive. Honor your father and your mother. Keep the Sabbath. I am the Lord your God. Don't worship idols is also positive because if you do have the proper concept of God, then you, that you know on your own not to worship idols. The second are all thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. Just for the information of the viewers, in Judaism, we don't really call them the Ten Commandments. I'm not even sure who invented the phrase. They are called in Hebrew the Aseris Hadibris, which means ten declarations. And they are not designed to be the be-all and end-all of justice or of what, in your words, elevates the species. They are 10 out of 613 commandments that the Jewish people are obligated to fulfill. Non-Jewish people, by law of Judaism, are obligated to fulfill seven commandments, one of which, by the way, one of the seven, is to create some sort of form of civil law. No particular details are given, just they have to have some sort of fair type of civil law, what you, I guess, would call justice. It doesn't matter if it's a parliamentary system, if it's a perhaps a monarchy, if it's fair, there has to be some type of civil law. So in Judaism, the Ten Commandments aren't designed, or they're not meant, rather, to be all there is to the elevation of the species are all there is to be a good person. What they are designed to be is kind of in the forefront of everything else such that they include 
the other commandments as well. So, for example, when you talk about justice and you say, or, or mercy or kindness, don't take an opportunity, don't miss an opportunity to do kindness, okay? Well, in Judaism, it's not merely, kindness is not merely kindness. Kindness means that by God's law, the person who you're doing the kindness to is entitled to that kindness. They have a right to it. My little sister, when she was a little kid, she said when she wants, you're about five years old, when she wants to grow up, she wants to be a bank teller because everybody gives them all their money. Now, she didn't <laughs> understand that. You see, when we do a kindness to somebody, in Judaism, it's not merely that we gave them something that they're not entitled to. If we can do them a kindness and they need it and it is within our power, we are obligated to do it. And if you do not give somebody something you are obligated to give them, that's like stealing. In other words, if you don't pay a worker for his wages, technically, by the letter of the law, you didn't steal from him the element of the offense in Judaism is called something else. It's oishek. It, technically, it's not the same. We have different words for robbery, uh, burglary, and things like that. Kidnapping is also a type of stealing. And by not giving charity, when you have the ability to, and the obligation, we have precise guidelines as to when you're obligated. You know, a, a person doesn't have to give 99% of his money to charity. We have rules. But if you can help somebody and they need your help, it's considered as if they have a right to that help. And by you not giving it, that's included in thou shalt not steal because you violated his rights. You didn't give him what he's entitled to. No different than if you wouldn't give a worker his wages. It's different in the technicality, but it's all under the same rubric. Honor your father and your mother means have gratitude to people. The reason why we honor our father and our mother is because they brought us into the world. Therefore, they are entitled to our gratitude. We derive from there that if somebody does you uh, a favor or does some good for you, you now owe them. It's an obligation. Gratitude is an obligation. And if you do not fulfill your obligation then number one, you didn't learn from the commandment of honor your father and your mother, and two, you stole from them as well. Well, I think, I think, Rabbi, again, I don't, I'm, I'm not disagreeing. I think that that's incomplete. It's incomplete in this sense. If somebody, you know, throws uh, some jewelry around you, you didn't ask for it, and you say, well, now you owe them back. You say, no, here's the jewelry back again. I don't want it. With regard, I certainly believe that there's a presumption that you know, children should be honoring their father or the mother, but the father and the but the children aren't slaves to the father and the mother. It's possible that the father and the mother can misbehave. It's possible that the that the father could rape the child, and uh, to tell me that the child should celebrate and honor the father that has committed incest seems to me very imprudent. <laughs> I don't think that's correct. But nobody says to do that. You see, these rules are come with thousands and thousands of details, derivations with them. Nobody but they, claims. But nobody, the rule, but but let me let me. I apologize for interjecting. Go ahead. Go ahead. But but the rule, but the rule on its face 
does not, when you just say honor father and, and mother, it doesn't say, but there are exceptions. It doesn't say honor if they do good to you. No, on because the right. whole the whole the whole derivation of the exceptions depends upon further thinking. What's the purpose behind it? Are there reasons why the rules shouldn't apply in one case or another? And that's exactly what I'm trying to cultivate with say, thinking beyond simply the words of the commandments themselves and asking more deeply what is the purpose of the rule. And if it's not going to be served in a particular case, then don't comply with the rule. Two things. Thing number one. You the key phrase that you used is on its face. Jews don't look at any of the Bible on its face. There's no such thing. When it says an eye for an eye, we don't punish people by taking out an eye for an eye. It means give monetary compensation. That's maybe the first rule of Judaism. The Bible is not what it seems on its face ever, ever. Every word, every letter is there for a purpose, and we're entitled to ask uh, the questions that you ask. We're also entitled to ask, why is this word there as opposed to another word? Why is this letter there as opposed to another letter? And we have an entire body of Torah not derived by people's thinking, but derived by what we call in Judaism the oral law. So when Moses was on her, on Mount Sinai receiving the Torah from God, and God said, honor your father and your mother, Moses surely had the sense to ask your question to God. And God said, oh, no, no, don't take uh, the Ten Commandments on its face. Let me explain to you what we mean. And then God would not only say that, but he would give oral laws to Moses, and he would show Moses in the Torah where it says various different things. We have rules as to what type of father you're obligated to honor, what type of father not, under which circumstances you are and under which circumstances you're not, which things that he tells you are you obligated to fulfill and which not. It's much more complicated than just honor your father and your mother. So there's no rabbi on the planet that doesn't have, at least not my religion, that doesn't have a library of hundreds, if not thousands of books on these topics, right? And the we're still trying to understand it to this day. There are questions that come up, more modern questions that didn't exist 500 years ago that we need to derive from the Torah. So that that's first. Second, see the word in Hebrew for purpose, when you talk about the reason or the purpose, is tam. Tam also means in Hebrew, taste. And in Hebrew, when there is a, not modern Hebrew, the Zionists invented modern Hebrew, that's a silly language, but in biblical Hebrew, when you have synonyms, that means that it's not really two words that sound the same, you have uh, two words, two things that have the same sound. Over here, taste and reason are very similar and they overlap. When we say, when we look for the reason for the commandments, it's impossible for human beings to derive the entire reasons for the commandments. We are finite creatures with finite brains. We can't even figure out the infinite wisdom in the universe. Scientists haven't even scratched the surface. Certainly, in the spiritual universe, the center of which, the apex of which is the Torah. We can't figure it out, but we can get a little taste of what it's like. We, but I see. I think, and if I could interject here, I think that we're not we're we're seeking for the optimal. 
you know, standards or normative behavior. Not perfect. You're absolutely right. We have limited brains. No one's infallible, right? So we want the optimal. And the reason why maybe a lawyer focuses on uh, the, the plain language is that you can't have a rule of law where everybody says, oh, the law on its face, it doesn't really mean that. It means something else. Because then you're going to have 100 people interpreting the law in 100 different ways. And then you just have who, who wins, whose interpretation wins, who's ever got the best AK-47. Now, of course, I understand that all words have some ambiguity. And maybe even, even Bill Clinton found ambiguity in the meaning of the word is, is. You know, So if you want to be really obtuse, you can find some ambiguity in anything. But I do believe that it is very important when you're setting forth in a society that to be governed by the rule of law, you know, norms of behavior, that you've got to take the words at face value. And if you want it, you want amendments and you want variations, you got to write it down. That's fair warning to everybody. Otherwise, you're going to have chaos out there and the rule of law is going to be disintegrated. I mean, I know I live in the world of politics. I know all the ulterior motives that go behind looking at thing. Oh, it really doesn't mean what you think it means. It means something different or the opposite. Because these people care not about justice, they care about power and acquiring and maintaining power. Right. And that's a that maybe that's a prudential element that enters into somebody thinking about what kind of rules and how detailed they should be for governing society as opposed to drafting rules that earmark a religion. I'm not well, talking about uh, religion. I believe freedom of religion and everyone should be able to establish whatever norms they want. I don't want to second guess that. If that fulfills them, wonderful. I'm talking about the norms that we hope will raise a little bit the level of civilization that, that we occupy. Well, if, if you're going to say that, okay, the religion should be ignored and you're talking about applying the religious rules to society, then, well, the Ten Commandments on its face is not Judaism. And as far as I'm concerned, it's not the Ten Commandments. It's not a question of interpreting it. Interpreting in English can mean two things. You can interpret a poem, in which case whoever has the AK-47 wins, right? Yeah. Or you can interpret an X-ray. You have doctors that interpret X-rays differently, right? You even have, you can, you can have two doctors that have different diagnoses, and they're some better than others. With rabbis and diagnoses, it's the same thing. The Bible, really, it's a skill to interpret the Bible. There can be disagreements in the same way that there are disagreements between great diagnosticians, but it's not everybody can do what they want. First, that's why when we choose our rabbis and when Orthodox Jews choose their leaders, righteousness and lack of ulterior motive is an absolute requirement for being an authority. Second, there are strict rules that of interpretation in the same way there are ways of interpreting symptoms of a sickness. Uh, different doctors interpret, but somebody's going to be right, somebody's going to be wrong. Now, there are again, there are disagreements amongst rabbis, and we have rules about how to deal with that. But since Jews went to kindergarten, and when I, since I was in kindergarten, we start learning this. Some people dedicate their lives to playing baseball and learning music, and they go to music school. Rabbis go to rabbinic school from the time they're little kids. And just as if you want to be an Olympic skater, you have to start when you're a little kid and learn the skill. It's really the same as a rabbi. Now, just like you have in Washington, 
the charlatans there. There are charlatan rabbis, I give you, that get up and say, I'm a rabbi and this is my interpretation. And it is a problem because we do have doctors who are charlatans as well. And somebody who never went to medical school has a hard time knowing if the anti-vaxxers or the vaxxers or these people with their statistics and they come and they overwhelm you with this. Well, anybody, whoever has an AK-47 has the better medical opinion, but yeah. it doesn't think, work that way. Well, but I, I think I, I would say that the analogy that you're drawing between, you know, using different people study wisdom, the commandments, justice, and people discussing and becoming experts in science, the force of gravity, F equals force mass times acceleration. I do not think the analogy really works very well, only on a very, very inexact way. And the reason is because there are numerous more ulterior motives for people to misinterpret words to acquire power than there are to misinterpret what the, what, what the force of gravity is. You know, <laughs> you don't gain a whole lot by misinterpreting that. In fact, you could, you could kill yourself. And my experience is in Washington and reading 20,000 books too, I study all the history of government dispensations, dispersals of power. The very smartest people who get trained in this all the time go to Harvard Law School, like John McCloy, and he says, in justifying, the incarceration in concentration camps of 120,000 Japanese Americans in World War II, the Constitution is a scrap of paper to me. And he received all sorts of, and afterwards, he's a celebrated statesman. He helps rule Germany post-World War II. The Harvard people, the Harvard graduates, I'm just giving you one example. They architect and implemented the Japanese American concentration camps with no evidence at all. They accepted the assertion of General John DeWitt, who examined the West Coast and said, there's no evidence of Japanese American espionage or sabotage, and that's a confirming indication that treason is afoot. I mean, literally crazy. And you take it to January 6th. We had, these are the people who are the top flight. These are the Rudy Giuliani's, John Eastman saying, oh, the counting of the votes in the 12th, 12th Amendment. Oh, the vice president can decide who won the election. Looking at the same. So I do not think, although there's some comparison, when you're looking at scientific disagreements, what is, is this X-ray show? Or, you know, you, this equal MC square. The likelihood of getting it wrong is so much less because there really isn't much in your advantage to make it up. When it comes to power in issues of normative conduct, there's huge advantages for people who are getting it wrong. You get power and money. The, and therefore, there are, the risk is far greater if you just, well, you interpret it however you want. And if you're you expert and you study this stuff, you'll do the right thing. You could know it and do the wrong thing. You're right. And that's why we have many controls to prevent such a thing. First, the people you're talking about, for the most part, are people who have power, either elected or they grabbed power, and then they can interpret things as they want. There is no Pope of the Jews there is no elected positions. I mean, people can elect their local rabbis, but Jew, Judaism as a whole, Orthodox Judaism, has no hierarchy of authority. The only authorities are those who I and whoever else is involved recognize as an authority. We use experts, not authorities. Mm -hmm. And part of being an expert, part of the requirements is not merely wisdom. It's holiness, strength of character, righteousness. And a track record, besides which, 
Orthodox Jews are trained to, if not be rabbis, at least be peer reviewers of rabbis. So every statement that every rabbi says is peer reviewed by thousands of people who went through the same education that he did. Those who excel in getting things right repeatedly and in holiness, meaning righteousness, and in expertise, altogether, they become the authorities. And if you want to know why, you know the old saying, uh, 10 Jews, 20 opinions? This is why we don't have authorities for this very reason. Power, nobody has power over our religion. Nobody. I have full authority to follow whatever I believe is right in my religion, but <laughs> I also have full authority to diagnose my own medical situations. You need the expertise. You also need in medicine, there is a lot of motive a lot of motive to get things wrong, as we all know. There's insurance fraud. There are people who want patients, right? And yet there is the better doctors and worse doctors. They are the more honest ones and less honest. And it's up to us, the patients, to be able to figure out who's who. In Judaism, there was a big rabbinic school in a town called Lublin in Poland, and the rabbi there was, his name was Rabbi Shapiro, no relation to me, eighth cousin, actually. And there he had, it was the first big school in the sense that we have, let's say, American schools. It actually today is a medical school in Lublin. He wanted a thousand students. Unfortunately, the Holocaust came and that was the end of his plans. And people asked him, it says in the Talmud that from every thousand students, only one is going to become rabbi. What, is, what are you going to do with the other 999? And he said, if those 999 are successful, at least they'll know which one is the rabbi. Uh -huh. Yeah, but see, I think that that certainly, you know, in the, in, in, in the United States anyway, and that's what I'm focused on today, uh, we don't have education that trains people to have a clue about who knows what the Constitution is or not. In fact, the people who run the government are clueless about the Constitution. I know because I talk to them every day. I once developed a test on constitutional knowledge for members of Congress, and I gave it to a former senator who I'll leave unknown. He says, Bruce, this is way too hard. They'll never pass any of this. They don't know. They, they, I mean, this, this is what is frightening uh, about how the education, the, the decay in the education has made it impossible uh, for there to be that what you call self-selection by peer review, if you will. There isn't any peer review. I once I talked to a member of Congress, and I will name him, Thomas Massey from Kentucky. Okay. And he said, Bruce, for me to discuss the Constitution with my constituents and other members is like reading Shakespeare to cows. They don't care. Right? So it's hard to know where you go from there. But I do think that the, the difference we have, and I may not call it difference, the supplementary views, the complementary views we have, I'm thinking less about what is the best way to, what's the best religion if you have or set of beliefs in a personal sphere as to what beliefs we try to inculcate in running a society that has to have rules, um, that they have to be enforceable. You need separation of powers. Is it, does it mean it's perfect? No, it's not going to be perfect, but it's better than the alternatives. And that's why I believe that these, the norms that I've focused on in my Ten Commandments tries to focus on those things that, and I believe, are destroying the world. One of the worst is, and I'll volunteer this because this is kind of my fixation, is war. War 
to me, is legalized first-degree murder. You get to kill people if they're not threatening your life. That's what war is. And that we exalt in our culture, in our literature, the armored knight more than the thinker. That's wrong in my view. Uh, The armored knight sometimes has to be praised in self-defense because you can't let other people slaughter you. You Jews know that with the Holocaust. On the other hand, other than self-defense, no. It's not a, we shouldn't be celebrating even killing people in self-defense. It's a tragedy. You slaughter, you're killing people. And that you need to develop, you know, a culture that attaches itself. No, we only can go to war in self-defense and that's Congress has the war power. And that needs to be inculcated, I believe. Always celebrate the thinker over the armored knight, even though sometimes we do need an armored knight. But let's, if we have enough thinkers, we won't need armored knights. Yeah, I, I I agree with you, and and you're clarifying actually what our discussion is about. I want to mention one word about justice in terms of Judaism and our Ten Commandments, and I'm using that phrase colloquially as I mentioned. And then I want to address what you said when we talk about justice done by human beings such as ourselves, even the most well-meaning ones. The justice, as you said, is always it's always uh, pretty much imperfect. And for various reasons, one, we know that our legal system, it's a great legal system, but if one guy has a better lawyer than the other, and there are so many ways to fool a jury, you know, if you tell a jury, even statistics, if you tell a jury one out of 10 cases are like this, or you tell them 10%, the jury will respond differently to the same fact presented different ways. In addition, and this is a very important a thing if somebody commits a crime and he goes to jail harm is done to his innocent children and family now yes he should have thought of that but there is an injustice done to the children harm for of innocent people but there really is no choice because we always need to choose the lesser of the evils now god is different when god meets out justice He takes all of this into consideration because he has an infinite capacity for good and infinite understanding of good and bad. So when somebody gets punished, let's say by God, somebody dies because everybody who dies is because God chose that he should die. That's the way the world works. And dying just means passing on to the next world, right? This is, that's our belief. We're here 70, 80, 110 years. And then for billions and billions of years ad infinitum, we exist. Hopefully if we uh, merit it uh, in the next world. Let let me interject, if I apologize, but this is, I think, a very important point. See, I think there's a different way to look at, you know, being no longer being physical, corporeal existence, because I don't, it seems to me that the truly wise and uh, great, they never die because they live beyond their corporeal lives through example, through writings that continue to resonate to those yet to be born, they, even for thousands of years later. If, that, if your life is inspiring conduct by somebody a thousand years later, you're still alive. That's because true. We, 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 because that's the purpose of our life is to inspire other people to be better. That's true. They do live on in that sense. The only disadvantage of that type of life is that you who are dead don't get to enjoy it. 
Okay. But that's but should be you should you should enjoy it knowing that it's going to happen. That's fair it's, enough. That's, in that's, our, that's, its own, that's, that, its that's own. fine. In our religion, we get to enjoy our benefits of our life, not merely knowing what's going to happen, but in the present time in a much in an unimaginable way. But again, this is a religion. Now, when God meets out pain to somebody in his justice, and there are other people, we'll call them innocent bystanders, that also get hurt, God has a calculation as to why those people received that pain or that hurt. As you said, not everybody is born in the same circumstances. Some people have a better, have an easier life. That's a better word. Some people have a more difficult life. Some people complain, and it's all part of God's cosmic plans. But all of God's actions are just not only for the person to whom the justice is meeting out, but all the seemingly peripheral people. Because at the same time, and again, this is like some kind of infinite artificial intelligence thing, but it's not artificial. It's the the creator of all intelligence in an infinite way. He's judging all of the people together, every, all of the world at every moment. And there's interlocking, intertwining fates that people have. And that's like the ultimate justice. And therefore, to us, to Orthodox Jews, following what the Torah says, you're putting your hands in the infinite experts, infinite Rachum, the merciful one, the just one, all at the same time, who has no motive, cannot, even if he wanted to, God, have a motive to do bad. He gains nothing. He's perfect as it is, gains nothing by doing any evil or any bad. Even if he wanted to, theoretically, he couldn't. It wouldn't be just like he can't grow a nose. However, for human beings, I agree that if we're not going to be implementing systems created by infinite gods and necessary existence first causes and all of those things then yeah i would agree with you that if somebody would want to take the 10 commandments on its face and say okay this is what we have to implement in society we're dead meat because i'll give you an example you know when i said the 10 commandments says thou shalt not kill that was also a colloquialism that's not what it says the hebrew word for kill is hariga killing it says losirtsach Ritzicha doesn't mean killing, it means murder. It really says thou shalt not murder. In the translation, it's just loose. Now the question is, what is murder? What is considered murder? Now, how is anybody supposed to know that? It says thou shalt not commit adultery. Okay, go tell me what adultery is. Thou shalt not steal. Well, what is stealing? So you're anyway on your own. Really, the the basis for, in my view, implementing a religious overtones, so to speak, values is a better word, religious values into secular society, and I do believe in that, is really the first of the commandments. I am the Lord your God, which means that there is such a thing as objective morality. God started the Ten Commandments by that, and doing so, one of the things he communicated to us is it's not human beings that are imperfect that are making these laws. I am. Just like God can create tables and chairs, he can create should statements. You should. I understand. But, but, but as for people 
living under governments. And of course, and Jews live under a government of Israel. I know some Zionists well, do well, not well, want well. state. I, I live under that. the government of Israel? No, no, you don't. You're not there. I don't. But if you if you are if you were residing in Israel, you could you would have to apply to the laws enacted by the Knesset or promulgated by the Prime Minister. Which are no or more have, Jewish. You'd have to, I, I just must say they are no more Jewish in certain ways, a lot less so than the Jew laws uh, here in the United States of America okay, and the laws in China. Uh, no, I'm no, I'm, but I'm just saying that for for people who in in most everywhere people live under a government, you know, there are laws that you must comply with or face some kind of sanctions. Now, the 100%. sanctions can be unjust. I mean, if you live in China or Russia and engage in free speech, you know, they'll punish you and liquidate you or do all sorts of things. There are unjust laws, I believe, in the United States, too. It's a matter of are there avenues of redress that are peaceful that ought to be utilized because the consequence of deciding on your own, that's an unjust law. The heck, I'm not going to comply with it. Sets a precedent and says, well, anybody else can look at the law. Donald Trump looks at the 12th Amendment and says, you know, I'm not going to comply with that. And at that point, the whole system breaks down and we're at civil war. Now, with regard to the the points of, well, what does murder mean? You know, what does it mean to steal? It's true that a dictionary isn't created by itself, but we're human beings. And in my view, that if we deliberate and think about the idea that no causing harm to other people <laughs> is not something that ought to be praised, that we can come to our own conclusions without any outside force. It's wrong to kill somebody else. It's wrong to pick up a, 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 a stick and smash somebody else's head. It's wrong to steal you know, possessions that they have. Now, is there a way in which we can prove that in the same way we can prove in mathematics one plus one equals two? No, but we must go ahead and take the risk that we're wrong because the risk of not making those judgments is catastrophic in my judgment to the world. At that uh, point, we're, we, we've been returned to barbarism, right? So- that, and those are the kinds of things that I think that that we have to accept that we could be wrong. Uh, you got to you got to make a judgment, even at less than 100 percent certainty. Otherwise, we're paralyzed and we're reduced to animals. I agree and with you. Now, I and I have a question for you. What you're describing that even though we can't prove we can't prove anything is wrong, as we know, you cannot prove a should. An ought from an is. You can't prove should. God can create should statements, but human beings can't prove should. However, you're right. We're not better than animals. I have a question. What is our motivation to be better than animals? After all, are we not merely, put religion aside, put God aside, a combination of various different elements, hydrogen, helium, lithium, etc. Why shouldn't we live like animals? Like, isn't survival of the, what is our motivation? Mm -hmm. Not mm -hmm. to have a survival of the fittest society. Yes. I mean, it's a wonderful question. I mean, I once I've read several times Darwin's Origin of Species and Descent of Man. He really never asked that question. He just says, as a matter of fact, species develop and cultivate traits that can that contribute to survival. No moral content whatsoever. Just if you can survive, hey, that's good enough. You don't ask questions why. My view, and it's just my view. Using my cerebral faculties says that's wrong. I exist to advance the cause of justice, to make my reflective capacities dominate what I call my hormonal instincts and gratifications. 
The gratifications, power, sex, money, celebrity, creature comforts. Those are what I call instinctual gratifications. They don't depend on any reflective power whatsoever. Now, I could be totally wrong because I'm not omniscient. I don't really know how human beings came into being. I don't know how the mass of Earth was created or the universe. But I have to decide, hey, I'm going to have one life. Maybe I can live forever if people read the stuff that I write. And I think I have to, I, and the reason why I depend upon my reflective capacities in reaching these conclusions, because the alternatives to me is so atrocious and horrible. I, I said, that can't be right. Maybe what I'm doing wrong, but, but, but to just respond to my hormonals cannot be right. Because the whole purpose of having a brain is to be something more than an animal, in my judgment. Now, unfortunately to me, in encountering countless people, and in Washington, D.C., they're disproportionately represented. They don't believe life is anything more than being an animal. Just get away with it. Bruce, why do you care about this stuff? Why are you reading books? Go ahead and, you know, have, have a pleasant time and, and drink beer and smoke and, and make money and, and have sex and be a celebrity. I said, I, couldn't, I can't do that. I can't do it. I would view myself as destroying the whole reason why I've been endowed with a brain. Who endowed? But if you were endowed by a brain by accident, and it was just merely a a coincidence that a bunch of cells, uh, molecules, elements got together to make molecules and cells, you were endowed by a brain by accident, right? Yeah. So who cares? I I, I, don't, I don't I don't. But I, who cares? I care anyway because okay, it's still fine. I can I can I can still detect what I consider to be a more pleasant civilized world than not. Now, of course, those can be value generated. Somebody could say, no, it's really civilized to live like Adolf Hitler and, and have the Nazi youth or whatever. I said, well, no, you can believe that at that point, you know, we're just going to have to decide who somebody's going to have to win the game and it's going to be violence because there's any way to discuss this anymore with you. And I got self-preservation and, and, and that I, I, this is necessary to get rid of monsters like that. Unfortunately, they exist. And we try to work so that we don't have to have that, but if it comes to that, you know, it's better to do the right thing than just to live a long life. I, I, I can I presume to explain why you feel this way? <laughs> I can't give you an answer other than may this, I? Rather, may this, I? This, no, may okay, I give you this, my explanation? Okay. Well, let me. This is uh, let me before you enter into your explanation. I was about. I was in high school, you know, and. When I just, it just flashed into my mind. I wouldn't know, not like Paul on the way to Damascus, but I said, you know, all, all the stuff that yeah, you're concerned about when you're young, you know, the, the, the sports and the cars, this is nonsense. It doesn't mean anything. Who cares about it? You're inflating fleas into elephants and shrinking elephants into fleas. I started to think. And that really changed my whole life. I started reading Socrates and the, the, just taking the hemlock rather than to give up, uh, you know, an examined life. And that's how I've lived thereafter. Now, why that happened to me at that moment? Because I did have a period when I, I wanted to play for the Boston Celtics and succeed Bob Cousy or something like that. And I said, that's in before I really became a human being. But anyway, let's go ahead and you tell me what. I'll tell you, you because I, I, I agree with you. Uh, and it's a strange thing, human beings. You know, you would think that survival of the fittest would have made human beings more a able to survive than animals and and yet and yet animals don't really declare war on each other the way no. humans do you take a cow give him a 
bull, a nice shady spot under a tree and some grass, and he's okay. But human beings go way beyond what they need to survive. They they kill for honor, for glory, for all sorts of abstract concepts that make no sense in terms of the physical survival, right? And, yeah. and then on top of all that, you have all the way on the other hand, your instinct, and that's what you're describing. You you were given a brain, the purpose of your brain, and, and yet accidents don't really have purpose. And yet we feel that there's a purpose to something. So I'll tell you what uh, Judaism teaches about this instinct. Mm-hmm. And you, you, know, you have free will to take it or not, but a human being is created out of a combination of two things, a body and a soul. A body is the same as an animal. Mm-hmm. The soul is a part of God, is an offshoot of God. And there's, there's tension when the body and the soul get together. It's kind of like our sages say, imagine a caveman marries a princess. And they go <laughs> live in the cave. Okay, they fell in love. They eloped, right? The king is all upset. She goes to the guy's cave. It's all romantic. Now, one night, she, she goes to sleep one night. She's still in her wedding dress, okay? And she wakes up in the middle of the night and she's cold and it's hard, the cave, the stone floor. And she's used to, I don't know, Sealy Pustropedic mattress. So she wakes <laughs> up and, and the her husband's will call him Wog. That's his name. He's a caveman. Okay. Wog, he's he's not stupid. He may be a caveman, but he's not stupid. And he sees his bride and he knows she comes from there. And he says, She's used to luxuries. I'm going to get her a luxury. So he goes out with a slingshot, kills a rabbit, brings back the dead rabbit by the ears to the bride and says, here it is. And she's (laughs) like, oh, no, please. And it just makes it worse. And he's thinking to himself, oh, no, I'm a caveman. She's used to better things than this. So now he takes his bow and arrow, kills a bear and brings her a bloody carcass or something. And the more he tries to please her, the worse it gets for her, right? The body and the soul are like that. The soul yearns for the things that you're feeling, for morals, for things that are right. It yearns for God because it's a godly thing, but the body feels that soul and it tries to satisfy the soul, that emptiness that it feels with things that it thinks are going to satisfy it with glory, with with honor, with, with travel with war, with with things like that, because there's a physical body, there's an animal trying to satisfy what in its animal instincts feels the emptiness, the the desire of a godly soul. And no matter how much it tries, it's not going to work. You're exactly right. I mean, I agree with that. And see, my view is that, I mean, this is just me. I don't, the whole, I say, Bruce, you're here to make certain, you know, that you never let your hormonal instincts, your hormonal gratifications distort your judgment in doing the right thing. I don't have any, to be candid, I'm not trying to praise myself. You wouldn't pay me a trillion dollars. I would never enter a brothel. I would never take any, any, any wine, any, any cigarette, any marijuana, any drug. I, I just wouldn't do that no matter what. I wouldn't, I said, I'm not tempted to it, you know, occasion for sin. I said, are you kidding? It's revolting to me that it has succumbed to hormonal gratifications. I, I feel that I would be regressing to a child. I said, I'm, I'm going ager. I'm supposed to grow wiser by the day, not stupider. And I do believe that what you've described is exactly the pathology of the species because they don't have a philosophical anchor 
to do justice, as inexact as it may be. They seek surrogates to give them a reason to exist, to, to affirm who they are, because it's not by being virtuous that they get that self-affirmation. They feel, oh, I can kill somebody else. I got more money. I have a bigger house than they got. You know, I have a prettier girlfriend than they got and stuff like that. And that's why they run around their whole lives are what what Henry David Thoreau called lives of quiet desperation, because they will not take the self-discipline needed to be introspective and say, I got to do the right thing. I got to live with myself 24 hours a day, making sure I'm doing the right thing. And so they end up squandering their whole lives. And, they, and these people, they're rich. They do go into suborbital space and waste their money on this most stupid things in the world. You know, they could be giving scholarships to people. Uh, but I believe this because they have no philosophical soul whatsoever. Uh, the soul, without, if you eliminate God and religion, where does the soul come from? It's just, you, 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 it comes from thinking. You, it comes from, the soul comes from thinking using our brain, you know? Whereas, because I, I believe it's important, you know, one, when Socrates was told by the oracles at Delphi, you are the wisest man in all of Athens because you're the only one who knows what he doesn't know. In news, we got to ask questions and you ha- sometimes you got to live with uncertainty, right? You just got to say, you know what? I'm not, never going to be able to answer that question. I got to deal with it. And that I always, every day I wake up and said, Bruce, everything you believe could be wrong. So always be open. You maybe think about X, Y, Z. Maybe something new will get you there. But I'm not going to, I cannot accept and believe something if I my brain doesn't tell me, yeah, I clearly know it's true or it's not true. If I don't know whether it's true or not true, I said, listen, I, I can't say one way or the other. My brain isn't capable of going there. It's like scientists today. It's not, but I agree the, the analogy is not perfect. But you know, when they try to discuss you know, the, the characteristics of light. They say tum- sometimes light acts as a particle and sometimes it's a wave. But you say, well, how can it be both? And so, well, we treat it as one or the other, whichever gives us the best explanation. You know, the results give us better by treating it sometimes as a wave and sometimes a particle than having it just one or the other. So that's the way I feel. Okay. It may be an inconsistent, but you're always striving to make it optimal. We're never going to be perfect, right? We know we're never. Perfection is beyond the capacity of the species. Um, but as long as we're making progress in the right direction, that's the best that we can ask for. And we got to be satisfied with it. Right. So they don't know if light is particle or wave, but they do know that water is a liquid. And if some, <laughs> some things we do know, right? Oh, that is but correct. we won't know unless we unless we seek it out. And That's it's right. such an important question. Why do we feel we need to do right? Why we feel we're different than animals? We do yeah. feel that. Why? Why is justice so important? You, Bruce, have dedicated your life to it. You're a bright man, really bright man, a scholar. I've heard some of your speeches down there by the Committee of the Republic. And, you know, I've seen your, your material and you've dedicated your life to this. You mentioned this and you're missing out on a lot of stuff that a lot, a lot of people have willingly. And I'm not criticizing you for it. On the contrary, I'm, I'm praising you for it, but I, I for one would really try like the scientists try. uh, Although today they don't know how to reconcile the waves and the particles. They're still trying and maybe one day they'll do it. No, no, I understand that. And that's why I say every day I wake up and said, you know, maybe you'll find something new. 
you know, there's never a statute of limitations on truth or understanding, right? Always, well, you know when you want to have that conversation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I maybe you know, further conversation and discussion because this is not easy stuff. You know, and trying to use your mind without any ulterior motives. Absolutely. You wonder why is X, Y, Z. That's that's the biggest thing that we confront. You know, we're all human beings. We all got to question. You have an ulterior motive for this other than just searching for truth. You got to get rid of the ulterior motives. Truth Absolutely. on its own sake has got to be the touchstone. But, you know, we're human. So there's probably some ulterior motive, even if you don't try to try to, you know, minimize or diminish it to a small as it can be, which is maybe may distort, you know, your judgment. Uh, uh, agreed. And if we're talking about opinions, then ulterior motives are a big obstacle. But as you know, as a lawyer, somebody can have all the ulterior motive at all, uh, for what he's saying. But if he's a witness and he sees something, he's right. You can yeah, have yeah, somebody, you, can right. yeah. you know, you can do the right thing for the wrong reason sometimes. Absolutely. And you can know the truth, <laughs> even though you have ulterior motive to know the truth. Uh, that's correct, for sure. That's why everything's got to be taken on the merits. There are exceptions to everything, and you got to ask, okay, this is a presumption, but is there an exception here? Always ask questions. As I say, always always ask why before going to how. Is there a reason for X, Y, Z? Never foreclose, never foreclose discussion. Uh, that, that's why I believe in some sense, the whole idea of due process. Hey, I, it began, I believe, when a, some human beings stood up and said, I could be wrong. I got to hear the other side, the process by which we seek to optimize the likelihood we'll get to the truth. Cross-examination, you have a question, you've got to have an opportunity to respond. That's the beginning, not the end, but it's the beginning of civilization. And unfortunately, in many, many countries, you know, we ain't even at that stage yet, you know, due process. Are you kidding me? No, I just decide you're guilty. That's the end of the matter. We don't have a trial. <laughs> okay. Well, all right, that's the animal kingdom, right? You know, the, the, the elk or the bears, you know, fighting each other to see who's going to be the new super bear or something like that. It's they, they don't, don't talk about who wisdom being the, the one that will result in being the, the head of the pack or something of that sort. But these are these. And one of the things that, to my mind, Rabbi, is so regrettable in at least our culture today is that the kind of discussion we're having today, it doesn't exist. You know, in in the general population, not in the schools, not in the not at the, the the dining room table, not around the friends. You know, everybody's got these these electronic gadgets. They already they they revert to hieroglyphics. They don't even use the alphabet anymore. And, and the result is, uh, although I don't want to be starry eyed and think we were ever perfect, is that each gener it becomes worse and worse with each generation. They think think anything at all. They don't even think the things we're discussing are worth talking about. They're on TikTok and, and they have their icons or people who jump up and down and scream and purely hormonal. Talk about instincts. They're, they're the purely animal. And they're the ones who set the examples for the youth to follow. And I don't know how you, how, how you change that. Yeah, well, if I was a youth, <laughs> I wouldn't be motivated to change it unless I knew that it would benefit me to forego these things. And for that, I, the soul is the only answer that I have. Right. And there's peer pressure. And, you know, we're not born. Let's listen. We're born. I, I say, I, I, I tell myself, Bruce, we're all born 99.9% .9 hormonal and 1% cerebral. And the goal is when you die, you're 99% cerebral and 1% hormonal. 
but that doesn't happen by spontaneous combustion. You got to work on it. You have to have examples. And, and examples are even more important to my mind in changing behavior than reading and you can even the, the best writers and scholars. And at present, we're, who are, where are the examples out there to encourage me to say, I want to be like that? You know, they don't exist. Not, not certainly in the popular culture. They certainly don't work in, in, in looking at quarters of power. Are you kidding me? I'd run away from these people. You know? I know. You see, that's a different discussion. But the truth is, I look at this and I say, whose fault is that? All of these people were either elected by the population or they are promoted by the population, celebrities and things like that. If nobody becomes a role model or a celebrity unless they have an audience to make them a celebrity. So it's a chicken and an egg thing. And that's right. Unless, I, I agree. And see, that's why I say the parents, you know, you're, you're worried about your kids wasting time. Just tell them to get off. They give them something more important. Give them some, think about a soul, think about philosophy. As well, soon as there's no demand, don't worry. They'll be off the air in five seconds. They won't even be the internet anymore. You yeah. Know? The demand and, that creates the supply, not the other way around. And that's why my, my family, my community, we are very, very careful as to what culture, what information, disinformation, rather, what messages reach our children. Yeah. It's very important. I mean, I, I don't have a television. I just I said, why would I waste well, my that's time? That's good for you. Absolutely. I go back. And I, I, I read, I, I read in the, in the evening, mm -hmm. not, not that that's, that's important. And that's why there's no reason why you have to have a television. You, the, the, the cult, culture, we were far, if you took the collective IQ of the United States before the television, we had a higher collective IQ because people read books. For sure. I had a grandmother out in Lamar, Colorado. She never spent a day in school. She had read all the great books, Encyclopedia Britannica. She knew about Mr. Pickwick. She knew about Mr. Micawber. She'd read all of Charles Dickens. Graduates from Harvard and Yale wouldn't even know who these characters are today. They say, who's Charles Dickens? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't know how to respond. Uh, what can you do? We do our best. This is what I, every day I get up, Rabbi, and they say, it doesn't, you have to try. The only sin is to fail to try. Even if it seems hopeless, you got to try. Because you know what? It's mm -hmm. clearly the better than all the alternatives, even though it looks like, well, may not succeed. Well, so what? The very And this is one of the reasons why I say that. I keep thinking the very, very first human being who stood up and said slavery is wrong. We don't know who that person probably was killed. We don't know who that person is, right? The very first human being said, no, women are not chattels. They're equal with men. We don't know who that first person was, right? Probably has no credit anywhere in the world. We, you know, they're totally obscure. But we all should be grateful that that person existed because somebody's got to start the conversation, even if in the short run it goes nowhere. Because if it's not broached at one time, it'll never go anywhere. You're making me, Bruce, very happy that I'm an Orthodox Jew. <laughs> you know, even to the point, you know, we have a, a something seemingly innocent, like, we have a town, San Antonio, Texas. In San Antonio, Texas, there's the Alamo. I don't know if you've mm -hmm. ever been there, right? Yeah, I have been there. Yeah, I have okay, been. the Alamo is a scene of a battle. We glorify it. Yeah. 
if you're against wars, and I don't like wars either, wars are bad, why are you glorifying a, a town, a scene of a battle? In yeah, Judaism, in the Bible, there are wars and battles all over the place, but Jews, you know, we have holy sites and things like that. There's no site of any war or battle that's meaningful in any sense to us. We don't name our children after warriors we don't even we don't even aspire to be strong men this is a zehu gibor our, our children learn who is strong he who conquers himself and this is one of the things actually that the zionists hated about the jews that where's your strong men where's your army where's your why aren't you normal like other people yeah, yeah, but yeah. Uh, in our community wars and even you don't you don't hit somebody you don't raise your hand to somebody you know less self-defense etc but defense yeah you're right that's another story but it's this way of the what you called it the thinker yeah yeah that's that's the only way it's the only way forward bruce yeah <laughs> exactly so we we few we happy few we band of brothers you know but we're not before agincourt we're before philosophy you know and i don't know Henry V kind of made it at Agincourt, but he didn't last very long. And Agincourt was reversed soon afterwards because it was. It wasn't built upon the thinker. It was built upon the warrior. And so that's all castles of sand. When it's in, until you're building something on the thinker, it's going to dissolve and go away. The only thing that lives in perpetuity is an idea, an idea of justice, due process, fairness, honor, gallantry, kindness, graciousness. All those things, these ideas, their concepts, you can't eliminate them. All other corporeal things, they come and they go. Even the, even the rock of Gibraltar at some point is going to wash away. But the idea of justice will be here forever. Thank you very much, Bruce. It was great having you. Thank you very much for inviting me. I hope I didn't trespass on, commit too many faux pas. <laughs>